0: The hyperkalemia cocktail doesn't fix your patient's potassium. It buys us some time. So after you give it, you want to make sure you have a plan to get the potassium out of the body. As the nurse, we are the ones responsible to monitor the patient and their rhythm to see if the potassium is creeping back into the serum. If you think potassium's on the rise again, speak up. Make that phone call to expedite dialysis. Call the doctor and ask for a redraw, or to repeat the cocktail. Do whatever you have to do to prevent your patient from going into an arrhythmia. But if they do, be prepared with the defibrillator and the crash cart and insulin. Hey there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology and nurses role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to part two of the hyperkalemia breakdown. If you have yet to listen to part one, pause this and go back and check out episode 46, where I share my story of Miss Wanda, who came into the ER with a potassium level of 8.9, and she cardiac arrested right in front of me. But with a little electricity and some pharmacological intervention, we got her back and she actually made it to discharge. So in part one, I broke down the reasons why patients might develop and elevated potassium and what the clinical findings might be. So, I'm currently working on some hyperkalemia visuals for you for Instagram because it's really hard to describe the ECG changes that you would anticipate through just an audio platform of a podcast. For me personally, I would need a visual to learn it. So, if you haven't followed me on Instagram, come and find me at the Rapid Response RN. Okay, on to part two. What should we do about hyperkalemia? Well, The answer depends partly on why the potassium is high in the first place, and then how high that it is. So in summary, you have to find a way to remove the potassium from the body, either by excreting it through the kidneys, or through the GI system, or through dialysis. But all three of the above options take time. There are medications we can give to help temporarily shoot the potassium back into the cell and lower the serum potassium, which I will get to. First, let's talk about treating the source and the options for excretion. So if hyperkalemia isn't severe, say it's less than six with no ECG changes, then consider the source and treat the source. Like if it's from a medication, stop the medication. If it's from dehydration, rehydrate. You can also give diuretics to encourage the excretion of potassium to the kidneys. So Lasix, for example, would help drop the potassium. But for patients whose kidney function is poor or non-existent, diuretics will not help. You need the kidneys to fully participate for diuretics to work. Another way to eliminate potassium is to excrete it through the gut. I have given a lot of caoxylate or sodium polystyrene sulfonate to help bind potassium to the stool and excrete it as explosive, smelly diarrhea. But honestly, it doesn't work as well as we had once thought. It's been shown, yes, to decrease potassium by an average of 0.93 after 24 hours, but at what cost? Dehydration from diarrhea. There's also potential for harm from Caxylate as it can cause bowel ischemia in some patients. So don't think you're going to quickly drop the potassium with the caxalate. There are better options. There's another drug called Lokelma or sodium zirconium. Oh my gosh, i want to butcher this one. Cyclosilicate. that also works to pull out potassium. It is actually a cation exchanger that exchanges the sodium and hydrogen ions for potassium through the intestine. It works a little faster with reduction in potassium levels starting to show as soon as an hour and without all the diarrhea. But eliminating potassium from the body, either through the gut or through the kidneys or via dialysis, like actually removing potassium from the body is going to be a slower fix. If your potassium is greater than six or there are ECG changes or both, let's take a quicker route. There's this whole cocktail of drugs you can give to shift the potassium out of the bloodstream and back into the cell temporarily to decrease the potassium until you can actually remove it from the body. So let me tell you the cocktail you might see, but know that the specific cocktail is going to be ordered. It's going to depend on the patient's presentation, the ordering physician, and what you have available at your facility. So they are calcium, insulin IV push, dextrose to counteract the insulin, a ton of albuterol, sodium bicarb, and IV fluids. So if you are trying to multitask right now, you may want to come back to this section. It's about to get real sciency. So let's start from the top. The doctor orders this big old cocktail of meds. Which one do you give first? And the answer is calcium. But why calcium? Because calcium doesn't actually lower the potassium. So we give calcium to prevent the scary arrhythmias that hyperkalemia can cause. Calcium stabilizes the cardiac membrane. Okay, cool, but but how? (laughs) You know, I've been throwing around the rationale that calcium stabilizes the cardiac membrane for years. Kind of like when someone asks you, what is the mitochondria? The answer, the powerhouse of the cell. Right, like I still remember that from fifth grade, but What does that actually mean? Honestly, I couldn't tell you anything else about the mitochondria except for that one statement. So I think that memorizing that calcium, quote, stabilizes the cardiac membrane is sufficient. But if you want to know how calcium helps prevent hyperkalemia-induced arrhythmias, here it is. Remember in part one of this hyperkalemia series, I talked about how hyperkalemia increases the resting membrane potential of the cardiac myocytes. And that's not good because then the sodium channels don't all open up and this slows the impulse conduction. Well, calcium decreases the resting membrane potential, which increases the activity of sodium channels. And that's how it quote, stabilizes the cardiac membrane. It brings balance to the mix of ions so they can carry out each phase of the cardiac action potential cycle. So in summary, calcium counteracts potassium's depolarizing effects to stabilize the cardiac membrane. And prevent dysrhythmias. So you give calcium first, because that's the whole reason you're giving this cocktail, is to prevent arrhythmias. And you have to give it slowly. Usually what I do is I inject the calcium into a 50cc bag so it can start dripping in while I prep the rest of the cocktail. The doctor may order calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, again, depending on your facility, your physician, and what's going on with the patient. Most of the time, calcium gluconate is preferred because it's less harsh in the veins, but it's also less potent. So calcium gluconate is the one that comes in the vial. It needs to go in over about five to 10 minutes, depending on the dose. The usual dose is 1000 milligrams or 10 mLs or up to even 3000 milligrams. So you can sit there and push it slowly over 10 minutes, but I don't want it to just stand there for 10 minutes pushing drugs. I have other drugs I have to prep. So again, I inject it to a mini bag, prime that tubing and let it free drip in, which conveniently will take about five to 10 minutes if it drips in by gravity. Now, when I have a central line, I've also given calcium chloride. That's the one that comes in the yellow box that we give during cardiac arrest. So calcium chloride is three times more potent or concentrated with calcium than calcium gluconate is. So it's very irritating to the veins. I would definitely dilute it and hang it over 10 minutes if that's what's ordered. But if your patient is coding, like Miss Wanda, Just press it straight in, undiluted, right to the vein, because your patient is dead and they need the effects of the calcium right away. So first, calcium to prevent arrhythmias. But like I said, it doesn't actually help your high potassium level problem. So next, you have to get something to shift the potassium out of the serum into the cell, and that medication is insulin, specifically IV insulin. But here's the thing. The standard dose is five to 10 units of insulin IV. So then you also have to give dextrose to counteract the so You don't bottom out your patient's blood sugar. But if a patient comes in with a blood sugar that's greater than 250, you can probably safely give the insulin without the dextrose chaser. Most of the time they're to be given together, but I personally give the dextrose first. And here's why. What if I give the insulin first and my IV goes bad while I'm giving the dextrose? So then I have a patient with a rapidly plummeting blood glucose, and I have no IV access to fix it. So I give dextrose first. If the IV can handle the dextrose, it's probably good to give the insulin. (laughs) Now, how do you get the insulin that you drew up in your insulin syringe with an insulin needle into your patient's IV? Those syringes are meant for sub-Q injections. Now, some facilities have ones where the needle can screw off, but in my hospital, they're all one piece. So... If you were to take that insulin syringe and put the needle into your needleless IV system, you will spring a leaking your tubing. So What you can do is get a regular, normal saline pre-filled flush, squirt out a little bit to make some space, pull back, and then go ahead and inject your IV insulin, like your 10 units, into your flush syringe. Now your insulin is in a syringe with a lure lock that you can attach to your IV pigtail. You're welcome. <laughs> Okay, so insulin to drive the potassium back into the cell, at least temporarily, and dextrose to counteract the insulin. The dextrose will wear off before the insulin, so you may need to start a D10 infusion to keep the blood sugar from bottoming out. I just want to reinforce that insulin is not the solution to hyperkalemia. We did not just dissolve or excrete potassium when we gave insulin. We just shifted it, and it will shift back. So if potassium removal either from medications or dialysis is delayed for more than four hours, you may want to repeat the doses of both the insulin and the dextrose and maybe the calcium too. You can redraw the labs or just look at your ECG to see if the potassium is starting to shift back into the serum. How high are the T waves? Are the P waves flat or absent? How wide is the QRS complex? If you notice scary ECG changes returning, might reconsider redosing those drugs. The next drug in the cocktail is albuterol, like a lot of albuterol, 10 to 20 milligrams. So for reference, each little albuterol fish that, you know, once you like crack open and squirt into the nebulizer, each of those is 2.5 milligrams. So your patient would need four to eight nebulized treatments. That's a lot of nebulizers. So you may have some tachycardia. To be honest with you, none of the docs that I work with give this, but if I had a patient that was truly crashing or we knew the potassium was crazy high, I might ask to try it. Albuterol is a beta-2 agonist, so it can cause a small shift of potassium, but it's not the first drug that you would turn to. Next is bicarb. And this one is so debatable. So bicarb can be helpful if your patient is acidotic. Acidosis potentiates hyperkalemia. So in theory, giving bicarb would shift the pH toward neutral, which would lower the potassium. However, the hypertonicity of the concentrated amps of sodium bicarb, so not, not the liter bag, the amps, the 50 ml equivalent and 50 ml big bubba syringes that come in the dookie brown boxes that are stocked in the crash cart, that are so hypertonic that they give you a hand cramp trying to push them in the IV, Yeah, those ones, they might actually make things worse or at minimum have no effect on the potassium. So the hypertonic amps, like the really concentrated ones, they may shift the pH and fix the acidosis, but they might also draw potassium out of the cell back into the serum through osmotic shifting. So if you have an acidotic patient and you need to give bicarb, give it as an isotonic bicarb drip. This would be equivalent to three amps injected into a liter bag to dilute it out. So it's not so concentrated. The drip would infuse over an hour or two, but a liter of fluids to an end-stage renal patient is not a good idea. So the bicarb step is often skipped either because the patient's not acidotic or they're in renal failure and can't tolerate that much fluid that fast. And speaking of fluids, the last intervention that may or may not be needed would be fluids to help rinse out the potassium or dilute it. Because the majority of your hyperkalemia patients are also renal failure patients, and you likely won't be giving fluids. But say, in the face of rhabdomyolysis or gastroenteritis, you would need fluids because your patients try. But which fluids? Some would argue LR, or lactated ringers, and others argue normal saline. So I've read a bunch. There's a lot of differing opinions on this one. I went and spoke to one of my favorite intensivists about it. And I asked him, I said, doc, say you get a patient who's hyperkalemic and dry. What is your fluid resuscitation of choice? He immediately started laughing because he knows this is the point of disagreement among physicians. He said he prefers LR, even though the nephrologist would disagree with him because LR has a small amount of potassium in it. And when I say small, I mean a whopping four mill equivalents in a liter bag, but it is much more pH balanced, especially for having to give multiple liters to fluid resuscitate. Normal saline could potentiate acidosis and hence increase your potassium more than the minuscule amount of potassium a liter of LR would. So I don't know what to tell you. I don't feel equipped to weigh in strongly on the LR versus normal saline debate, but if you need fluids, an isotonic bicarb drip would be ideal if your patient's acidotic. Otherwise, it depends on who orders it if you're gonna be giving LR or normal saline. I think I tend to agree with my favorite intensivist. LR seems safest to me since four milliequivalents equivalents of potassium is nothing. I mean, for reference, a banana, a whole banana has 12 milliequivalents equivalents of potassium. So your liter of LR has as much potassium as like three bites of banana. Anyways, I'm done with that rabbit hole on LR versus normal saline. So let's summarize the treatment for hyperkalemia. To lower the serum potassium level, you can either diurese it out, poop it out, or filter it out with dialysis. But actually removing potassium takes time. So you can also just shift the potassium temporarily with the hyperkalemia cocktail. But you need to know why your patient is hyperkalemic to know which of the cocktail to give. So while Ensign does the heavy lifting of shifting potassium out of the blood and into the cell, she doesn't act alone. She needs her crew and her crew would be calcium, which should be given first to stabilize the cardiac membrane and prevent arrhythmias, then dextrose to prevent hypoglycemia from the insulin. That is doing the work of shifting potassium. You can also try a ton of albuterol, which is a beta-2 agonist. It will stimulate the sodium potassium pump to further assist with shifting potassium back into the cell. And if your patient is acidotic, you can give bicarb, but not the amps. (laughs) It needs to go into a liter of fluid, so it's an isotonic bicarb drip. That's probably your best bet. And if your patient needs to be fluid resuscitated, well, LR seems to be the safest option over normal saline. I think that sums up Hyperkalemia. If you haven't yet, make sure to check out part one because you need to understand why hyperkalemia develops, how it's problematic, and what to look for before understanding the treatment. I think the biggest takeaway that I want to leave you with is the hyperkalemia cocktail doesn't fix your patient's potassium, it buys us some time. So after you give it, you want to make sure you have a plan to get the potassium out of the body. As the nurse, we are the ones responsible to monitor the patient and their rhythm, to see if the potassium is creeping back into the serum. If you think potassium's on the rise again, speak up. Make that phone call to expedite dialysis. Call the doctor and ask for a redraw or to repeat the cocktail. Do whatever you have to do to prevent your patient from going into an arrhythmia. But if they do, be prepared with the defibrillator and the crash cart and insulin. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour Rapid Response and Rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence based practice is ever changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.